Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. First episode back, I am joined, of course, by Phoebe Watson. Hello! And it is with great and abundant joy that I get to say that now we are sitting opposite each other. Finally! (laughs) I may have disappeared for the entirety of the summer and stayed with my parents, but I have come back. I'm back almost a month now, would you Mm -hmm. believe? So it means that we get to record podcasts in person, which was such an unusual experience for me at this point that I almost forgot how to begin doing it. There's another software program I use when I'm recording over the internet, and I went to open that up, and I was like, oh no, I don't actually have to do that. But it all had also been so long that I actually needed to reboot all of the systems on this one because I, it, it, is, it was gathering dust on my desktop there. We came close to sending me to another room with my laptop and headset just to get the recording done. <laughs> uh, but no, it's really lovely to be back for a little kind of sneak peek behind the curtains. I have been recording episodes throughout the summer and I am really excited to bring them to you. But I wanted to come back with just an episode with Phoebe because in the next couple of episodes, there'll be some some new names and new voices, um, all just really wonderful guests who are going to be on the podcast. But I wanted to have a familiar voice for the first one back. I am so excited for some of your upcoming speakers, though. Yeah, exactly. But I just wanted to reassure our listeners who do like the usual medley of voices that they hear that it, it won't be all new voices. I just took the summer to kind of reach out to some people who I've been meaning and trying to get onto the podcast. So What she means is that she can't get rid of me. That's pretty much it. <laughs> Nor would I want to. So while the next couple of podcasts are going to be like a very, very minorly different, I thought we would come back with the first podcast with something that is bang on trend for us. <laughs> Yeah, this one is on brand. Yeah, this couldn't be more like on the whole marketing brand scope of the usual podcast. It in some ways follows on from our previous episode that we recorded all of, I think, three months ago now. What I'm saying is that we have decided to do this episode on The Wind in the Willows. Which, shockingly off-brand for both of us, neither of us had actually read before we started preparing for this podcast. I know, I think most of my friends have had a look of sort of a aghast, because they know me as someone who adores Brambley Hedge, and so the idea that I could be such a big fan of Brambley Hedge and have never have read or like watched any adaptation of The Wind in the Willows is sort of kind of <laughs> surprising and even a little bit horrifying to them. <laughs> But inspired by Maria Conley, who on the Springing Into the Season episode talked about The Wind in the Willows, when she said it, literally as we were recording it, I was like nodding along as if I knew what she was talking about. And I made a mental note at that point to be like, you really got to read that, Rachel. (laughs) And so... I think there's been like about four episodes in the last year that I, or we referenced The Wind in the Willows, but this is the episode that we're going to talk about it for. So we have to get it all out of our system because as soon as I read it, I immediately called Phoebe and was like, you've got to read it. (laughs) That wasn't as soon as you'd read it. That was as soon as you'd like listen to the first chapter. Pretty much, yeah. And then we enjoyed it so much that 
Upon returning to Dublin, we decided to reread it together through the audiobook that I have. So I'd like to give a special shout out to the audiobook because it is so good. The one on Audible is read by, actually there's a whole load of them, so I think there's a couple of good ones, but the one that I chose and really, really like is read by Michael Horden, who I believe plays Badger in one of the adaptations of it. And his just, his intonation and the way he reads it, it just brings it on another level to me. It was great. And I really surprised myself by how much I enjoyed reading it. Mm-hmm. Like, I was expecting to enjoy it. Yeah. I wasn't expecting it to love it as much as I did. Yeah, I think there's a certain type of reading it where, especially with classics, you're like, huh, I can appreciate how this is a part of the classic literature of the world. And then there's times when you, you read something and you're like, this is now in my soul. <laughs> And Winnie the Willows definitely falls on that side of things for me. Yeah, definitely. And I think the thing that really drew me to it was the the theme that we're going to talk about for this episode, which is both the fact that when I was reading it, I just had this huge sense of longing to be in the world of The Wind in the Willows, that like everything about it called to me, spoke to me. And then also, quite fittingly, the characters within the story also experienced this these feelings of longings and these kind of calls and we were going to talk about like the call to adventure and, and so we were kind of thinking that it would just be nice to sort of take a look at that sense of longing and I think that's so integral to our perspective of as Catholics like I think one of the the most famous Christian quotes that like isn't in the Bible is the one from St. Augustine, whose feast day, as we're recording, we've just had, when our hearts are restless until they rest in you, Lord, that I think a sense of restlessness is natural to all human beings, and that Christianity gives an eternal direction to that. Yeah, I think it kind of really ties in with one of the C.S. Lewis quotes of, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. In The Wind in the Willows, you've got these kind of dual calls of the call out to adventure, but also the call to home and what that means as well. Mm-hmm. And how those two are always in tension until you see them both as the fulfillment in God. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's good that you quoted C.S. Lewis there, because I think if any writer is sort of like at least not necessarily just in his fiction, but like just in his writing in general has explored this theme of of longing and desire. It's C.S. Lewis. He gives it this German word, which is Sensucht, which he talks about as being this, it's like this nostalgia, but also this forward-looking nostalgia. It's not just to the past. It's like it's a drawing you on sense of longing. And I think we're probably just going to bounce off each other with our favourite ones. Like I pulled out a bunch of quotes and there's genuinely, like I think even in my own document, there's about 20 various different ones that we could talk about that he he says but the one that I've picked out here is in Surprise by Joy he says it was a sensation of course of desire but desire for what before I knew what I desired the desire itself was gone the whole glimpse withdrawn the world turned commonplace again or only stirred by a longing for the longing that had just ceased Yeah, like the whole of Surprised by Joy is about that longing and seeking that out. And then also in A Pilgrim's Regress, he looks at what that means and how we can look for it in the wrong places as well. Yeah. Um, Which I think is very true in The Wind in the Willows, that we see these calls going wrong. 
a quote, this is actually from The Weight of Glory, of by C.S. Lewis. The books or music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. It was not in them, it only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshippers, for they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower which we have not found, the echo of a tune which we have not heard, news from a country which we have never yet visited. <laughs> I mean, I know we quote C.S. Lewis a lot, but there is a reason. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was thinking about the Pilgrim's Regress, because like you said, the that, that whole theme is very strong in that book from, from the quotes that I read. And I'm really, we have a copy of it and I'm really dying to read it, but I think we've discussed how we feel like we really have to read The Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah, <laughs> I have I tried reading The Pilgrim's Regress when I borrowed it off your mother. <laughs> I think I got about two thirds of the way through, but because I hadn't read A Pilgrim's Progress, mm-hmm. I was just so lost as to the context. <laughs> Yeah. And then, of course, the other big place to sort of look for this sense of longing, which I just want to kind of touch on to to highlight, maybe it's a theme that we'll pick up again in another podcast, but obviously it's really strongly embedded in romantic poetry. And I think there is something particular about nature that draws out this sense of longing. I think it it works obviously very well for The Wind in the Willows because it is this natural setting. And Kenneth Graham, his descriptive writing about nature is so beautiful like it I think when you think of children's literature it can be very easy to just think of it as very plain writing and that can be really good I don't think I think even C.S. Lewis when he's writing the Narnia stories writes it in a very like clear precise it's not very descriptive and purple prosy kind of way so that's not a bad thing but I just wasn't expecting for the kind of level of literacy and vocabulary and metaphor and symbolism that Kenneth Graham uses in The Wind in the Willows but obviously like I said that really ties in with with some of the great examples of romantic poetry so there was one or two that I had picked out like obviously one of the most famous poems is Tintern Abbey by William Wordsworth and he describes it I have learned to look on nature as a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused. And I think, you know, just that sense that nature itself brings you into the transcendent, that like he says, that it it disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, that it can be very easy to distract yourself when you're in company and in your, you know, in your home and and you've got your to-do list and then you get out into nature and it reminds you that, like, the world is so much bigger than you. Yeah, and it's the idea that nature isn't quite comfortable. Yeah. That there is something alien there which both calls to us and is almost fearful in another way. Yeah, definitely. And then there's some great examples of them talking about longing in the specifics. So there's one from Matthew Arnold where he says, yet still from time to time, vague and forlorn, from soul's subterranean depth upborne, as from an infinitely distant land, comes airs and floating echoes and convey a melancholy into all our day. And then finally from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, he has... I see the lights of the village gleam through the rain and and the mist, and a feeling of sadness comes over me that my soul cannot resist, a feeling of sadness and longing that is not akin to pain, 
and resemble sorrow only as the mist resembles the rain. It's just beautiful. But I think I really wanted to set up those those quotes to emphasize how much the Wind in the Willows really ties into that tradition. And it comes a bit later than like the Romance era, but yeah, that it's in this great tradition. Yeah, I think the bit that that one really speaks to me is that sense of homesickness. Mm. That isn't exactly the sense of just wanting to go home. It's not fulfilled just by going home. Yeah. But that sense of homesickness for something other than what we have now. Yeah. Absolutely. I love it. And to take one last little detour before we dive into the many, many, many quotes of The Wind of the Willows, which I pulled out. We are just going to quote the book. <laughs> this is going to be a very disjointed audiobook. A bit like we've, we've done this before with the screw tape letters where I keep keep quoting it. Like if you cut up this podcast episode and rearrange it, you'll probably get most of the book. But I just wanted to put The Wind in the Willows in a little bit of context, which is that we're also going to be relating it to to Tolkien and to C.S. Lewis, like we've already mentioned, like if you're going to talk about it, you have to talk about C.S. Lewis. And the thing that I kind of just wanted to draw out was how much those writers themselves also loved The Wind in the Willows, that this was a book that very much sat within the canon of books that they really loved. And so it, it also just that, because I know like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis are the, the classic ones that we quote for everything, but it does really make sense to, to turn to them for this kind of comparison. And we have just some some quotes about like how much they loved The Wind in the Willows. I think we're going to have to start with the A.A. Mill one though. Yeah, the best one is actually from A.A. Mill, who did go on to, he's obviously the author of Winnie the Pooh, but he also went on to create the play version of The Wind in the Willows, which is I think The Adventures of, of Mr. Toad. But he <laughs> was so such a big fan of the Wind in the Willows. I think you've got it here. I do. For the last 10 or 12 years, I have been recommending it. Usually I speak about it at my first meeting with a stranger. It is my opening remark, just as yours is something futile about the weather. If I don't get it in at the beginning, I squeeze it in at the end. The stranger has got to have it sometime. Should I ever find myself in the dock? And one never knows. My answer to the question whether I have anything to say would be, well, my lord, if I might just recommend a book to the jury before leaving. <laughs> I just love that, that like you have to recommend it to everyone, which yeah. is what we've been experiencing, except that we're so late to the game. Everyone's like, yes, of course we've read it. <laughs> yeah, I will also say it does really, when you were saying about it fitting within the canon, mm -hmm. I think having read it so late in the game, I did really see how like, oh, that makes so much sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think on that note, in terms of spoilers... Oh, yeah. Um, we're just going to talk about it. I think like a general sense of the book isn't going to ruin it for you anyway. No, I, it's not really... In some ways, the plot is a kind of... It's more like small stories all hung together rather than like an overarching plot. Um, so I don't think knowing the plot really spoils it for you. Like I was saying earlier, it's so much more about the actual language used to describe it. So yes, uh, we will be talking about the plot points. But hopefully you're just better read than us and you've already read it. <laughs> that but, is the hope. 
But on Tolkien's opinion on it, he says that the book is an almost perfect blend at the russet stage of many pigments. And then he says a beast fable, a satire, comedy, conte fete, even pantomime, Wildwood and Rivers of Oxfordshire. He was a big fan of it. And then just to quote C.S. Lewis on it, I, I love this description. He says that a trio such as rat, mole and badger symbolises the extreme differentiation of persons in harmonious union, which we know intuitively to be our true refuge from both solitude and from the collective. Which brings us back to like the other main theme of The Wind in the Willows that we wanted to touch on, which was friendship. Yeah. Um, and how that, how the friendship, particularly between rat and mole, but then also badger and toad, really ties in and gives meaning to the two longings. Yeah. So I guess that's actually a good thing that like we'll maybe summarize a little bit of the plot just to give some context to the quotes that we're drawing from and because it all makes a lot of sense through the friendship. So it begins with Mole who is spring cleaning his house and feels the call to to get up and leave and you know see the world and he he leaves his home and almost immediately finds himself at the river where he he meets the water rat or just rat or ratty and they immediately become friends and they start spending time together and out on boats there's nothing so much worth doing as messing about on boats as rat says and you know it's very idyllic and they just spend this time they have they meet uh, rat's friend the otter and it's all just like a beautifully described summer idyll and then in the next kind of short story they meet Rat's friend Toad, who is the sort of like the most pompous and the most difficult of of the friends in it. He he's he's Toad of Toad Hole. He's the sort of aristocratic character who has lots of money and 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 has lots of hobbies and interests and fads and he seems to go through them at a fierce rate so when they meet him he's just bought a caravan and is insisting that they go on this caravan holiday and as they're on it they get driven off the road by a new car which Toad then becomes obsessed with and it becomes the kind of impetus for all of his adventures. Later they meet Badger who uh, Mole has wandered off by himself and gone into the wild wood and luckily is is saved from a very cold night in the snow a rat at this point has found him and, and is they meet Badger. So you have the, these different characters and they all represent very different characteristics of, of the animals of the, the wind and the willows. I think that kind of sets up the different characters mm-hmm. enough that we can dive into the, the themes that we were chatting about in the wind and the willows. So we're going to start with the call to adventure. And we're going to start by quoting the wind and the willows. Yeah, we're going to start pretty much at the beginning with Mole spring cleaning his house and it says spring was moving in the air above and in the earth below and around him penetrating even his dark and lowly little house with its spirit of divine discontent and longing i love that description that's so important to the whole idea that spirit of discontent yeah and divine discontent absolutely and then it goes on to say it was small wonder then that he suddenly flung down his brush on the floor and said bother and oh blow, and also hang spring cleaning, and bolted out of the house without even waiting to put on his coat. Something up above was calling him imperiously. I think what's really interesting about this start of the call to adventure is that Mole then ends up wandering along the riverbank and appreciating all of nature and learning so much more about the wider world that he, that he hasn't before. 
and obviously making a good friend almost immediately. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also the only time in the book where that call to adventure ends well, because it ends in home and friendship. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a, there's a real tension, I think, in the book, and, and we'll definitely come to it when we talk a bit more about like the call to home as well, because there's a tension between feeling called to be where you're placed and also the call to adventure which brings Mole out in the first place but in a weird way like his first call to adventure is almost like a call to home in that it's a new home but yeah it's so um I think that whole section at the start where it, it talks about him like you know enjoying not doing spring cleaning because he was watching everybody else doing their spring cleaning, that like the joy of a holiday is watching other people work. There's that real sense of like almost like mischievous glee in the sense of like being called out on this adventure. And it kind of reminds me actually, obviously in quite different sentiments, but the beginning of The the Hobbit where he runs out and he doesn't have anything, he doesn't even have his handkerchief. Um, he doesn't even have a pocket handkerchief. Exactly. So, you know, Mole leaves without his coat on. And I think there was... A really good parallel drawn between this and Lord of the Rings. There was an article called Tolkien, Lewis and the Wind in the Willows. And maybe Phoebe, actually, you want to read this quote. The Wind in the Willows famously begins with Mole flinging down his brush and bolting out of his house. However, before long, Mole is safely ensconced in another fine home, where he resumes his happily settled existence, until he is tempted to wander in the wild wood. There he is saved from stoats and weasels when he stumbles across yet another home, Mr Badger's comfortable set. And of course, there are more homes to come, the most important of which is Toad Hall, where the food was excellent, of course, as everything at Toad Hall always was. In this respect, at least, the wind in the willows resembles the opening of The Lord of the Rings, for Frodo also stumbles from home to homely home, before eventually entering regions far from home and its comforts. Yeah, there's that sense that the first steps in an adventure are like little steps that give you a reprieve as you sort of go along the road. And we're, we're about to come to more of the, the sort of more trepidatious calls to, to adventure. But Mole, at the very least, goes on a character journey where at the beginning, when he first meets Ratty, he's getting Rat into trouble by trying to steer the boat or, you know, he he's kind of thinks the world is too easy, that, like, everything will just come naturally to him. And he, Even um, his readiness to go with Toad in the caravan when Rat is like, this is a bad idea, we shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, exactly. But by the end of it, by the time he, we kind of have him, like, interacting with Toad Hall and, and, and there's a sort of big <laughs> not battle sequence I guess a kind of a battle sequence at the end but he has a, a lots of sense then so it's almost like you know it's like the training wheels like Mole is being given a little bit more license and a little bit more encouragement and a little bit more freedom until he learns how to be responsible and at that point you could kind of feel like he could go and, and do anything if he wanted to but yeah there's a sense of like being led along and being and learning as you go and not just diving straight into the big adventure and <laughs> yeah and I think also having the humility to learn like that's one of the really endearing points of Mole is mm. that when he does mess up yeah um and Ratty has to come rescue him he does acknowledge that so beautifully yeah 
Definitely. Whereas the other main character who's kind of associated with adventure is Mr. Toad, who becomes obsessed with cars and ends up getting thrown in prison because he's stolen cars and he's like bankrupting himself because he keeps buying cars and crashing them. And it's just this huge issue for his friends who are trying to protect him from making a fool of himself and making a fool of them to a certain extent. And, you know, it's definitely cast in a light which is saying, like, this is a really bad thing and you shouldn't be doing it. And, like, I think that's definitely the, the other side of the coin of what is a bad call to adventure. Like, what is just you wanting thrills and ego and, you know, it, it wasn't this divine discontent that we talked about for Mole. It was this faddishness and this self-importance that Toad has that just kind of drives him and makes him refuse to listen to his friends which is a big theme that he just like downright says no I'm going to stick at doing this because I want to do it. Yeah and I think we see that even with Mole in the Wild Wood that he hasn't listened to Ratty's warning mm-hmm. of oh we don't go there. Like, yeah. That he hasn't heeded his friend and then he gets into trouble. Yeah. Um, whereas the one adventure that they do have that is really positive, I think we'll talk more about later because it's also looking at the calling to the divine. But that's where they're out together and they're out in the service of another friend. Yeah. Yeah, that that's when a really good adventure can happen is when it's not about your own ego and where you don't try to go it alone. And that in that space that you're opening yourself up to like an actual call beyond yourself. Yeah, I think that's really correct. So the the chapter that we're referencing there is the, the Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which like we said, we'll come back to because it sort of encapsulates another call. But there's kind of... Like we said, the plot doesn't necessarily follow in a very linear way. There's sort of an overarching narrative about the four friends of Mole, Rat, Badger and Toad. But within that, there are sort of what you would almost call like rest chapters, which are more about the atmosphere, more about the kind of emotions or even the nature of it. And they sit sort of outside of necessarily the ongoing descriptions of the adventures of the of the four characters so the piper of the gates at dawn is one dolce domum is the first one which we're going to come to in our next section but the other one which is really relevant to this particular section is a chapter called wayfarers all and the reason i'm kind of highlighting this is that sometimes those chapters are actually cut out of the edition which is shocking because i think they are like the top three chapters in the entire book i know it's so heartbreaking to me i just bought an illustrated version which i am very happy with because it is beautifully illustrated by inga moore but those chapters are not in it and it's so heartbreaking i think piper at the gates of dawn is in it no no no, no dolce, that was out dolce domum is is in it yeah, yeah i think dolce domum is usually in it but yeah like they those ones can be cut out and it just breaks my heart but the one I was going to talk about is a chapter called Wayfarers All and so to kind of set this chapter up as we said Mole meets Rat who settles him into this new life in the riverbank and if you know one thing about Ratty it's that he loves his river and he never wants to go anywhere and he's very set in his ways at his river. Yeah, one of his quotes at the beginning is, beyond the wild wood comes the wide world, said the rat. And that's something that doesn't matter, either to you or to me. I've never been there, and I'm never going, nor you either. If you've got any sense at all, don't refer to it again, please. So, 
yeah, he just doesn't even want to hear about it. And when he goes on the caravan trip with uh, Toad, he's very good and like kind of keeps it all to himself. And, and Toad sort of like, like at one point goes, oh, talk about your river. This is real life. And he goes like, but I don't talk about my river. And then he says sort of, but I do think about it all the time. And your heart just breaks because he just, you know, he, he can't even bear to be away from his river for one day. So in this chapter, Wayfarers All, what happens is, first of all, he's kind of set ill at ease because it's the time of the year where the migratory birds are leaving and where the kind of hibernating animals are sort of bedding down and he always hates this time of the year because it means that people are leaving and disrupting and why would you ever want to leave? I think we better quote it. Yeah. The water rat was restless and he did not know exactly why. Nature's grand hotel has its season like the others. As the guests one by one pack, pay and depart and the seats at the table d'hotel shrink pitifully at each succeeding meal as suites of rooms are closed, carpets taken up, and waiters sent away, those boarders who are staying on, on pension, until the next year's full reopening, cannot help being somewhat affected by all these flittings and farewells, this eager discussion of plans, routes, and fresh quarters, this daily shrinkage in the stream of comradeship. One gets unsettled, depressed, and inclined to be querulous. Why this craving for change? Why not stay on quietly here, like us, and be jolly? You don't know this hotel out of season, and what fun we have among ourselves, we fellows who remain, and see the whole interesting year out. All very true, no doubt, the others always reply. We quite envy you, and some other year, perhaps. But just now we have engagements, and there's the bus at the door. Our time is up. So they depart with a smile and a nod, and we miss them and feel resentful. The rat was a self-sufficing sort of animal, rooted in the land, and whoever went, he stayed. Still, he could not help noticing what was in the air, and feel something of its influence in his bones. Yeah, so at the very start of the chapter, it really sets this up, and then he has this particularly like upsetting discussion with a, a set of birds who are flying back, and I think it really opens his eyes up to the possibility of what is out there in the world. So they're all kind of talking amongst themselves and they say, Ah yes, the call of the south of the south twittered the other two dreamily. Its songs, its hues, its radiant air. Oh, do you remember? And forgetting the rat, they slid into passionate reminiscence while he listened, fascinated, and his heart burned within him. In himself, too, he knew that it was vibrating at last, that chord hitherto dormant and unsuspected. The mere chatter of these southbound birds, their pale and second-hand reports, had yet power to awaken this wild new sensation and thrill him through and through with it. What would one moment of the real thing work in him, one passionate touch of the real southern sun, one waft of the authentic odour? With closed eyes he dared to dream, a moment in full abandonment, and when he looked again the river seemed steely and chill, the green fields grey and lightless. Then his loyal heart seemed to cry out on his weaker self for its treachery. Why do you ever come back then at all? he demanded of the swallows jealously. What do you find to attract you in this poor drab little country? And do you think, said the first swallow, that the other call is not for us too, in its due season, the call of lush meadow grass, wet orchards, warm insect-haunted ponds, of browsing cattle, 
of haymaking and all the farm buildings clustering around the house of the perfect eaves. I think that's so important because it really puts the call of the South in context that for the birds, the calls come in their seasons, mm-hmm. that there's a season when they're called South and there's another season when they're called North again. And those two kind of fulfill each other yeah. um, as they come. Whereas for the rat to be called South would mean leaving all that he holds dear. Yeah, and And without that certainty of being called back. Yeah, and I think for us as well, we can often... I know I've definitely found it at times in my life where other people are moving on, that they're being called somewhere else, and you haven't been called. Mm -hmm. And that staying where you are can be really, really difficult. Yeah. Yeah, you kind of just want to be able to move in season. Like, I've often said that about myself, that (laughs) this is maybe a really horrible trait of mine, but I always like being the first to leave. Like, if there's a group of people that I'm either living with or maybe traveling with, or I don't like being the last one left that then has to make my own way home. Like, I'd rather book my flight early and say, like, I'll be the first to go, bye. (laughs) Yeah, it really reminds me of the time when all of you guys left in college yeah we we lived together in college and then I was like two years behind everyone Mm -hmm. so they all left and I stayed on yeah and it is that really that feeling of no this is actually where I still have to be yeah and I think not to underestimate that that is difficult yeah Absolutely. And it gets in the chapter, it gets even more difficult for him. So then he meets the the wayfaring rat, the the sort of traveling rat who has has set up in the kind of local vicinity for the summer, but has decided to move on. And he he sits down with this rat and it gets told all of the great stories of all of the travels that he's he's had and the food that he's eaten. And rat really kind of comes under his spell. Like I think it does describe him as being kind of yeah it says spellbound and quivering with excitement the water rat followed the adventurer league by league over stormy bays through crowded road streets across harbour bars on a racing tide up winding rivers that hid their busy little towns round a sudden turn and left him with a regretful sigh planted at his dull inland farm about which he desired to hear nothing in some ways, as you're reading it, that's quite a heartbreaking moment because of how much Rat loves his home. So to see him have it kind of like coloured and, and, or rather discoloured is, is quite heartbreaking. Yeah, to see him see the river all grey and steely and his own native land is unfriendly Yeah, is really tough. So the Rat is from Constantinople and describes Marseille and Sardinia and yeah. like all of these different places. But very tellingly for that Rat... Constantinople is nothing to him. Yeah, the adventuring rat tries to lure away poor Ratty and says, You will come too, young brother, for the days pass and never return, and the south still waits for you. Take the adventure, heed the call, now ere the irrevocable moment passes. Tis but a banging of the door behind you, a blithesome step forward, and you are out of the old life and into the new. Then, some day, some day long hence, jog home here, if you will, when the cup has been drained and the play has been played, and sit down by your quiet river with a store of goodly memories for company. You can easily overtake me on the road, for you are young and I am ageing, and go softly. I will linger and look back, and at last I will surely see you coming, eager and light-hearted, with all the south in your face. 
That's so poignant, that point. Mm-hmm. I think, at least for me reading that, I was terrified that the rest of the book was going to be Rat's Adventures at Sea. Mm. Yeah, I think it's kind of hard because that sounds very right and good. But I think what you're kind of getting the sense that there is something we've hinted at before, which is that it's not the right time in that, or it's not the right motivation. That It's not the right move for Ratty. Yeah, that he's he's being stirred up to something that isn't really in, in the path for him. And that's not to say, like, and we're about to talk about the call of home and how you can't just get too settled in, in your home as well. But I think what we're harking to is, like I said, that, that restless until it rests in you, Lord, that our desires and our longings are up to God and that we can't sort of muster them up for ourselves and and say, well, now I'm going to become an an adventuring rat and I'm going to throw it all in and change everything just because somebody has given me a glimpse of what their life is like. And I think there's a certain level of which the other rat is, is kind of being a bit insincere in that he says, oh, and when you're done you'll come back to your your home and you'll enjoy your life and you'll have your memories. But he's just said he's aging and that he spent the summer at this farm, but he can't stay because he keeps getting called on. You know, that it does awake a sort of endless restless, that like an, 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 a directionless restless. Yeah, I think the directionlessness is the really telling part. That He kind of just goes from port to port and has friends at every port, mm-hmm. but is then quite happy to leave them and go on board again, mm-hmm. and yet takes no joy from the journey itself. Yeah. Like, you don't get the sense that the sailing for him is what it's at. Yeah. Like, for Rat, messing about in boats is where it's at. Yeah. But for the seafaring Rat, where it's at is just seeing new places all the time. Yeah, and I, I kind of pointed out that, like, oh, he says you'll have your memories for company. But at the time, Rat has mole for company. He doesn't, like, he's not alone. That's such a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, and that, and it's mole eventually, so Rat kind of goes into this daze. And it is kind of portrayed that, like, it's not in his nature. You see, like, the colour of his eyes has changed. And, uh, and and Mole talks him down and, and reminds him of how much he loves his home and uh, and settles him down again. It, to me, it correlates to, in Tolkien, the, the sense of sea longing. Like, it's really, like, similar in that it's a it's a type of longing that never lets you rest if you awake it. It's that line with Legolas where he says, The sea, alas, I have not yet beheld it, but deep in the hearts of all my kindred lies the sea longing, which it is perilous to stir. Alas for the gulls, no peace shall I have again, under beech or under elm. And there's also another poem within the sort of Tolkien canon where it talks about this sea longing. And, it, and I, I quote it because it, it's interesting. I don't think it's on purpose, but it is. there's an interesting correlation. I wonder if you can spot it. It says, "'Twas in the land of willows that I heard the unfathomed breath of the horns of Ulmer calling and shall hear them till my death. So to me, there's that sense of that kind of restlessness and embracing the restlessness it's not just a call to adventure it's a call to never settling and never having peace again and you know like we said it's perilous to stir and what mole so sort of admirably does yeah i love mole's response to that it says he's kind of like trying to talk rat out of this and it says 
Casually then, and with seeming indifference, the mole turned his talk to the harvest that was beginning to gather in, the towering wagons and their streaming trains, the growing ricks and the large moon rising over bare acres dotted with sheaves. He talked of the reddening apples around, of the browning nuts, of jams and preserves, and the distilling of cordials, till by easy stages such as these, he reached midwinter, its hearty joys and its snug home life, and then he became simply lyrical. By degrees, the rat began to sit up and join in. His dull eyes brightened, and he'd lost some of his listening air. Yeah, that's so good. And I think that helpfully kind of brings us to the topic of the call home. Definitely. I've got a quote here from an article called God's Whisper in the Wind in the Willows by Justin D. Lyons. And he says, The yearning for the new and undiscovered is balanced in the story by the powerful draw homewards. When the new becomes fatiguing or frightening, the familiar comforts of home begin to beckon. And after their adventure in the wild wood, both rat and mole are more than ready to return to snug security. There is that real sense in the book of there being two poles, either outwards or home. And some of the most beautiful writing is about that. Like we said, when Mole becomes lost in the wild wood and, and Rat comes to find them, they're like so relieved to get home. And I think it's really interesting that chapter really sets up what happens when you, you kind of are threatened with losing home. Yeah. And then the very next chapter is this this one that I've mentioned before, which is so encapsulating about... It is literally all about the call home. It's yeah. called Dolce Domum. Going back a second, even when they're lost in the wild wood, they then end up in Badger's set. Yeah. And that's like the first actual description of a home, like full description of a home we get. Like we get a few lines about Ratty's home. Yeah. And we get almost nothing about Mole's home yet. Mm-hmm. But we get like this full-blown talk-through of... Badger's home and that like that security from the danger that it gives not yeah. only to Badger but to like these little hedgehogs that have gotten lost in the snow yeah. and that kind of welcoming security that it- yeah I think Badger really represents the like steadfastness of home he talks about how Badgers were here before Badgers will remain there's like a there's an eternity about the like the the reliability of Badgers in this space that like everything about Badger is very much home based definitely and so like having had that chapter which I love and then going straight into Dolce Domum which is about the the context of which is that Mole and Rat are walking along and they're on their way home to Rat's house and in the middle of it Mole smells his old home and is you know drawn homewards and and they end up going to his his house and and like exploring it and, and finding out what it's like but that whole section of him getting the sensation of wanting to go home was so powerful to me that I was, uh, I think I described this in the previous episode of the podcast, but I was in the garden weeding and had to like stop myself from crying listening to the audiobook. Like even the beginning of it, of the chapter, going home to Rat's house sounds so appealing. Like it says... They found a beaten track that made walking a lighter business and responded moreover to that small inquiring something which all animals carry inside them, saying unmistakably, yes, quite right, this leads home. And then it goes on to say, Once beyond the village where the cottages ceased abruptly on either side of the road, they could smell through the darkness the friendly fields again, and they braced themselves for the last long stretch 
the home stretch, the stretch that we all know is bound to end sometime in the rattle of the door latch, the sudden firelight and the sight of familiar things greeting us as long absent travellers from far over sea. I love that sense that in some ways, no matter how short a time you've been away from home, Mm. you're always coming back to it as if from a long time. Yeah, I love that so much. Yeah, and then you've got this beautiful call of Mole smelling his old home. That He says, Since his escape on that bright morning, he had hardly given it a thought. So absorbed had he been in his new life, in all its pleasures, its surprises, its fresh and captivating experiences. Now, with a rush of old memories, how clearly it stood before him in the darkness. Shabby indeed, and small, and poorly furnished, yet his, the home he had made for himself, the home he had been so happy to get back to after his day's work. And the home had been happy with him too, evidently, and was missing him, and wanted him back, and was telling him so, through his nose, sorrowfully, reproachfully, but with no bitterness or anger, only with a plaintive reminder that it was there and wanted him. Yeah, it's so beautiful. And then it's so heartbreaking because Ratty's a little bit ahead and hears Mole saying something. He was like, oh, we'll deal with it when we get home and like just keeps going. And so Mole is just torn between this like overwhelming desire to run home and his desire not to forsake his his friend. Like he's such a, he's such a loyal little creature. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful. Um, And yeah, he chooses to go with Rat and then ends up like, crying and rat is such a good friend he's like all right then well we better get going and then immediately starts making for mole's home yeah i think you can see like that sense of you've made a mistake yeah um there's an easy way which is to suggest that you go home to rat's house have a cozy supper go back out again in the morning yeah rat doesn't go for that option he's like right We'll go find your home. Yeah, and so it says, Meanwhile, the wasps of his own home pleaded, whispered, conjured, and finally claimed him imperiously. He dared not tarry longer within their magic circle. With a wrench that tore his very heartstrings, he set his face down the road and followed submissively the track of the rat, while faint, thin little smells, still dogging his retreating nose, reproached him for his new friendship and his callous forgetfulness. And then when Rat asks him what the matter is, he starts crying and it says, Poor Mole found it difficult to get any words out between the upheavals of his chest that followed one upon another so quickly and held back his speech and choked it as it came. I know it's a shabby, dingy little place, he sobbed forth at last, brokenly. Not like your cosy quarters or Toad's beautiful hall or Badger's great house. But it was my own little home, and I was fond of it, and I went away and forgot all about it, and then I smelt it suddenly, on the road, when I called and you wouldn't listen, Rat, and everything came back to me, and I wanted it, oh dear, oh dear, and when you wouldn't turn back, Ratty, and I had to leave it, though I was smelling it all the time, I thought my heart would break. Such a heartbreaking piece really yeah such beautiful writing it's so Um, wonderful yeah what i think is really telling about that whole chapter is that because mole makes the choice to go with rat and Mm -hmm. be loyal to him and rat then equally makes the choice to be loyal to his friend and rectify that mistake mole's whole homecoming is so much more than it would have been if mole had just abandoned rat on the road and ducked back to his own home because he comes like, back to find it, like, not as good as his memory had 
given him that like it's shabbier and yeah. darker and and obviously it's been empty for yeah. nine months at this yeah. point exactly um and so but because he's with rat yeah. and this is what we come back to about the sense of adventure because he sticks with rat and then rat sticks with him rat is there like oh well, this is lovely and tell me about this and show me this and, he... and we'll have some sardines and yeah. like is working to get the supper ready and get mole to enjoy his house mm-hmm. um and actually like really brings it out for him in a way that he would never have been able to do for himself. And it leaves him with a sense of peace. So they, they spend the night there and Mole has this sort of reflection as he's going to sleep. And he sa- it says, He saw clearly how plain and simple, how narrow even, it all was. But clearly too, how much it all meant to him. And the special value of some such anchorage in one's existence. He did not want at all to abandon the new life and its splendid spaces, to turn his back on sun and air and all they offered him, and creep home and stay there. The upper world was too strong. It called to him still, even down there, and he knew he must return to the larger stage. But it was good to think that he had this to come back to, this place which was all his own, these things which were so glad to see him again. And he could always be counted upon for the same simple welcome. I mean, I think for me that really reminds me of coming home for the summer. That like that sense of coming back to your parents and your old room or your old habits and routines. That uh, my parents have often described that. I think my mum in particular has described it, saying that like you're free to go out and into the world because you know that there's like a safe anchorage back here. That yeah, that anchorage is so important in our lives, isn't it? And it gives you that freedom, as it says, to return to the larger stage. And there's some really lovely commentary on this. There's a an article called "The Longing in the Wind in the Willows" by Chris Wheeler, and he says these twin longings are for all of us. The longing to go, the longing to stay. They war within us as only they can, within those who live in tension between pilgrimage and home. We are set in a place designed to be our home, but marred by our willfulness. And we are journeying ever nearer to the distant shores of heaven itself, which are our home this earth could have been. And I think that really relates to what we actually said in the previous episode about fairy tales where... Tolkien talks about this being like a glimpse of Eden and that sense that that we are both at home and not at home. Yeah, definitely. And I think it really is captured in that quote from the T.S. Eliot poem Little Gidding that I'm obsessed with, where he says, We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time, through the unknown, unremembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. And I think there's something that is uniquely transcendent and divine about that idea that T.S. Eliot is kind of getting across there is that sense that in going out and in following that longing, we will eventually return home like a kind of like a big horseshoe. But that when we return home, what we really return to is not the thing that it was. And that's what C.S. Lewis talks about, that like if you were to actually go back in time to that pl- to that time that you sort of nostalgically remember, or if you were actually to go to that farther hill that has the sunshine on it. I'm, I'm talking specifically to my dad here, who every single day stands outside of our house and looks across at this field that always has the setting sun on it. And he just sort of is furious that our house isn't on that hill but that it's not a place that like we can only reach it once we reach the transcendent yeah i think we really see that in toad who 
gone off and got himself into trouble and landed himself in jail mm-hmm. and fallen into depression there. And the call of home reaches him in jail yeah. and gives him the impotence to escape and take the help that's offered and then make his way home again. But when he gets home, his home's been overrun by the weasels and the stoats. Mm-hmm. And it takes his friends as well as him to recapture it. It's a little bit like the scouring of the Shire. Well, that's what I was, I was going to credit. That's our, our friend and friend of the show, Greg, was the one who pointed that out to me, that he feels like that moment in the book is, is kind of a correlation to the, the scouring of the Shire. Yeah, it's a little bit less dramatic. It's not quite as hard to like clean up Toad Hall and get rid of the weasels and the stoats. Yeah. But um, yeah, that sense that he needs his friend's help to get back what he lost. And, and that also that his friends see the importance of reinstating him. There's no question about whether Toad should be going back to Toad Hall. That like, of course, they must try to retake Toad Hall. Yeah, and I think also very importantly that then he is able to enjoy Toad Hall in a way that he didn't before. Mm-hmm. Um, because he's not forever jumping on these fads. Yeah. And I think that an interesting thing to to point out there is that, which will lead us into our next section. So uh, the, our next section is, is the call to God and the call to transcendence, which is, is what we've been kind of hinting at here. But the chapter that dives into this in a really explicit way is The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which Phoebe and I have discussed as saying feels like it should be actually the end of the story. And that when you end with the adventures of Toad and reclaiming Toad Hall, that because it sort of just leaves you with the resolution being about the resolution between the tension of home and adventure, rather than God and the divine, that it kind of leaves it with a sort of an ending that doesn't feel like it, it it's fully realised. Yeah, there's still that like element of divine discontent. Like Mole hasn't gone home home. Yeah. He's still with Ratty. Yeah. And Toad is in a way subdued because he's been talked out of all his sense of adventure yeah. by his friends. Yeah. Um and he isn't the same Toad anymore. Yeah. Um so there's that kind of like little bit of edginess at the end. Yeah, and there's a really good quote on this from the article we talked about before, Tolkien, Lewis, and The Wind in the Willows, which says, The Wind in the Willows is a novel that celebrates home, yet it ends pathetically. Toad returns to Toad Hall, but he is now a strangely subdued creature. He has been conquered, but not converted. Mole, Rat, and Badger prevent him from singing at his homecoming feast, but deep down he is still the same vainglorious creature he was at the start of the book. And Mole, who has left his own home at the beginning of the book, drops out of view as well. He does not return home, and his new place of residence is not celebrated at the book's ending. He is quite out of place, as it seems as if Graham did not quite know what to do with him. Which I think is an interesting point. And I think, uh, like, Phoebe and I actually had a discussion about whether we think that Toad's sort of subduing is sincere or not sincere, which is too much to get into now. But I think what's interesting there is the fact that while we adore this book, clearly, we were saying how we feel like The Lord of the Rings, and even to a degree The Hobbit, and then also, like, the Narnia books get this a bit better because I think they're more deliberately God-focused yeah. that you can't just leave those characters there. Yeah, I think also within the narrative arc mm. that those ones are much more straightforward narratives of like you have the call of adventure and then you come home again. Yeah. And in particularly in Narnia, you always call back to Narnia to a certain extent 
but then as the children learn in the later books, learning to seek Aslan, who is what they're really seeking in Narnia, to learn to seek him in their own home. Yeah. Um, and therefore, by seeking him in their own home, solve that tension. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, in The Wind in the Willows, you're kind of left with the impression that they're just chipping away happily. Mm-hmm. But you're not really quite sure how that's playing out. Yeah. And so the final section that we're going to talk about is the the call to God, which is really centered on this one chapter called The Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Um, It is the most beautiful chapter. It's so beautiful. And so the plot of the chapter is that Otter's son, Portly, has gone missing. And Mole and Ratty decide to kind of without like a strict idea of how this is going to work, but they say that like it's better than doing nothing. They set off in their boat and start rowing the length of the river to see if they can find him. Yeah, on the short summer night. Yeah, so they, you know, instead of going to sleep, they're going to spend the night looking for, for this little otter. And they start hearing what is essentially kind of divine music and they become enraptured in this sort of like irresistible draw and they end up in this I think it's like a little island yeah it's an island just before we're yeah and there they encounter the god Pan who is sort of luring them on and has the little otter at his feet and so they see the god Pan and they're completely overtaken by this divine presence and then he disappears and makes them forget about it and they sort of all awaken and they've 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 managed to find the otter and they return him home and like they're left with a little bit of a sense that like something happened but not really but there's there's a happy ending and the reason why I've kind of like gone over like everything that happens in that chapter is that I think it's really important to highlight the fact that they meet Pan because it's the most contentious moment in the books um Tolkien would certainly say that the explicitness of it kind of mars the palette i think as he says um and i think a lot of religious people also feel very uncomfortable with that moment because it does it does explicitly say they do him worship so it is about meeting a pagan god and worshiping him but the thing that i would say and i I can certainly see a version where tolkien's vision of it would work where you would sort of like implicitly meet pan not explicitly meet him and and the the story could function almost identically and i i can definitely see that version of the story working but i also don't think that the presence of pan is something that you should especially for like catholic parents maybe reading this to their kids i can understand where some people get a bit uncomfortable the thing that i kind of took away from it was first of all that in some ways this could be how god is presented to the animals like they aren't humans yeah and that also because I, I made a point a lot of people really focus in on this as saying like this is kenneth graham putting forward his pagan version of the world and he was not as far as i can tell from anything that i've read he wasn't a regular churchgoer i don't think he was particularly christian but i don't think that's fair of the story because he specifically writes in in dulce domum it's set at Christmas, and so much so that he has a bunch of mice come around singing Christmas carols. And not only that, but he specifically writes a new Christmas carol for them to sing, which is ex- explicitly about the Christian narrative. And about how the mice fit into that Christian narrative. How they're all at the stable where Christ is born. Yeah. So uh, the, that's the one thing that I would say just about it being kind of like, I don't feel like it's specifically trying to write out the Christian narrative. And I think it just 
that dichotomy between Christmas and then Pan really speaks to the whole dichotomy within the whole within the book of this kind of they're animals but they're people. It, Graham will have moments where he like decides to point out an obscure bit of animal culture that he's made up. Like that they walk in single file like this or <laughs> Yeah, but also he never really gets it completely yeah. comfortable. Like he describes Toad as having hair that he combs or like you, And you... putting on his goggles to go driving and his and coat. You never get a sense of like how big these animals are. Toad when he's escaping from prison gets dressed up as a washerwoman and he's like convinces multiple humans that he is another human. And like... yet when he escapes from prison it's because the girl who's bringing him food, feels sorry for this animal. Yeah. So to be fair, I guess, to the story, it's not like it ever sets out a particularly clear setup for a lot of these things. I don't think that the, the religious aspect is the only time where it's a little bit muddled. Um, but that, like, also for me, even with the sense that, okay, this is a pagan god, the way that it's described is such a powerful description of the numinous and the first time that I ever came across an actual quote from The Wind in the Willows, believe it or not, was reading The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis where he talks about our ability to know that there is more to this world than just us and he talks about this idea of the numinous, the, the thing that is ghostly or is dreadful or awful and that it, it inspires dread or awe and he specifically says like uh, a, an example of this if we're not too proud to find it there is in The Wind in the Willows. And with that I think we should quote it. Yes. Then suddenly the mole felt a great awe fall upon him, an awe that turned his muscles to water bowed his head and rooted his feet to the ground. It was no panic terror. Indeed, he felt wonderfully at peace and happy. But it was an awe that smote and held him, and, without seeing, he knew it could only mean that some august presence was very, very near. With difficulty, he turned to look for his friend and saw him at his side, cowed, stricken and trembling violently. And still there was an utter silence in the populous bird-haunted branches around them, and still the light grew and grew. Perhaps he would never have dared to raise his eyes, but that, though the piping was now hushed, the call and the summons seemed still dominant and imperious. He might not refuse were death himself waiting to strike him instantly, once he looked with mortal eyes on things rightly kept hidden. Yeah, such a great example of how to convey this sort of trembling sense of entering into yeah. the unknown. And then it says that yeah, he looks into the very eyes of the friend and helper. Yeah, it describes Pan at that moment. And it says, All this he saw, for one moment, breathless and intense, vivid on the morning sky, and still as he looked, he lived, and still as he lived, he wondered. Rat he found breath to whisper, shaking. Are you afraid? Afraid, murmured the rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Oh, never, never. And yet, and yet, oh, mole, I am afraid. It's such a good way of explaining how something can be both loving and scary, that you, you can be totally awed and in wondrously awed by something and still afraid of it. 
yeah, what it means to encounter that which is so other to ourselves. Mm -hmm. There's a, a really good correlation that's in the article God's Whisper in the Wind in the Willows. It quotes that exact bit and says, Lewis may well have had this passage in mind 10 years later when he wrote the line The Witch in the Wardrobe. On first hearing about Aslan, Lucy asks Mr. Beaver whether he is safe. Of course he isn't safe, the beaver replied, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Yeah, I think that's also really telling in how we encounter Christ. Mm -hmm. But also, I think that idea that we don't fully encounter Christ in this life. Yeah. Because the combination of fear and love yeah. would be too great for us to handle. Yeah. And that what yeah, what's really striking in this passage is that the animals are then given forgetfulness of the event. Yeah. I think the one of the things that I was really struck by was how also that mole and rat are prepared to meet Pan because they've already been listening for him and his music or that they they've had their ears open from it. So um much earlier mole is when he's first out on the boat with Rat, he like leans down to the water and hears this this sound of of liquid gold through through the reeds, and that's exactly what they start hearing when they're out rowing. So it's like they're already listening out for it. Yeah, they're already in tune with the river and with that surrounding and seeking mm -hmm. what's to be found there. Yeah, exactly, and then. Rat, when they're out rowing at the, at the beginning of this story, he's like hearing it, hearing it, and waiting for Mole to be able to hear it. And it's this music that pulls them on more than anything. Um, and then, as you were about to, about to start talking about, which is that a kind of a big difference between maybe our encounter with the divine and this encounter is that Pan bestows on them forgetfulness, but that at the very end, when they've brought back the little otter, they've re reunited him with his family, and they're kind of reflecting on the night. It says, I feel as if I had been through something very exciting and rather terrible, and it was just over, and yet nothing in particular has happened. Or something very surprising and splendid and beautiful, murmured the rat, leaning back and closing his eyes. I feel just as you do, Mole, simply dead tired, though not body tired. It's lucky we've got this stream with us to take us home. Isn't it jolly to feel the sun again, soaking up one's bones, and to hark to the wind playing in the reeds? It's like music, far away music, the mole nodded drowsily. And even then they start like getting little whispers of it through the reeds. That like, that sense that when you, you're in the right frame of mind that you can hear these callings. And it reminds me of like, I think, you know, I, I was not in the, in the storm, I was in the whisper. Or the, the line from John 3, 8, where it says, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Yeah, and then just to talk about that forgetfulness. Mm. So it says that, For this, the last best gift the kindly demigod is carefully bestowing on those he has revealed himself in their helping, the gift of forgetfulness, lest the awful remembrance should remain and grow and overshadow mirth and pleasure, and the great haunting memory should spoil all the afterlives of little animals helped out of difficulties, in order that they should be happy and light-hearted as before. I think, yeah, that's a really powerful difference between us and the animals, that for us, the only resolution between the call to adventure 
and the call to home is the call to God. We will only be happy until we rest in Christ. And in that, we were also given a way to encounter Christ that the animals aren't given with Pan. Yeah. That the reason they're given this forgetfulness is because they would otherwise not be able to enjoy their daily lives because they wouldn't be able to encounter him in their daily lives. Yeah. Whereas we're given... The sacraments. The, we're given the sacraments and the grace of encountering Christ in our daily lives and sharing both our home life and our adventures with Christ. Exactly. There's a quote from God's Whisper in the Wind and the Willows which says, We long for the otherworldly, yet we often mistake the good things of this world for what shines through them, and so we chase after what cannot satisfy. We drink from wells that will never quench our thirst. As Lewis wrote in The Weight of Glory, which we've referenced before, These things are good images of what we desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshippers. We are told to set our minds on things above rather than on earthly things. But in doing so, we come to truly and fully enjoy the earthly things of a gracious God. We can cross the fields of life, awake to the upward call that tells us, yes, quite right, this leads home. Which, of course, is the quote that we we read out earlier from Dolce Domum, that all of those things make sense the experience of following God's call. And I think what makes it so powerful in The Wind in the Willows is that in some ways it's quite unexpected. There is another article, I think it was in First Things, called Beyond the Wild Wood by Alan Jacobs, where he says, The reader does not expect to discover, in the midst of this pian to friendship and domesticity, a glimpse of something far greater than friendship or domesticity. Something good beyond Badger's goodness, and yet infinitely more frightening. Something numinous. I just love it. And I think... Yeah, it's I, really, really beautiful. I think the reason that it gets cut is because it is almost so out of place and that you don't expect it. But to me, it's just the most beautiful chapter. Definitely. And I really love how he is described as a friend and helper. Yeah. Which in a sense makes him very Christ-like. Yeah. That it's not... Just this, like... Powerful being. Yeah. Yeah. Pan there is definitely, like, the helper and the the guide of all the woodland creatures. He's rescued the otter. And actually, there's just one quote that I also want to read from this chapter, which I think sets up some of the stuff I was saying about how lyrically and beautifully it's written about nature. But I just think this is an example of why it's so beautiful. So as they're rowing at night, it describes how the trees and the riverbank looks different at night. And it says that all of the plants are all softly disclosed, all washed clean of mystery and terror, all radiant again as by day, but with a difference that was tremendous. Their old haunts greeted them again in other raiment, as if they had slipped away and put on this pure new apparel and come quietly back, smiling as they shyly waited to see if they would be recognised again under it. I love that description of the moonlight. It's so telling to me because one of the things I really love about my home Mm. is the enjoyment of the moonlight and seeing the fields under the light of a bright moon. Yeah. And it's so otherworldly. Yeah. But also familiar. Yeah. Um, And I think that really brings us back to what we were saying in the episode on fairy tales that we did last, which is that these kind of books lead you to see the world in that light, which then leads you to see it in delight 
that freshness, that newness, that wonder in the world, that when, when you have it described like that, that helps you turn your whole thinking towards God. Yeah, I think it's also beautiful that it really enhances our enjoyment of the nature around us. Yeah. That every river becomes a home for a ratty and mole. Yeah. That the woods could be the wild woods. Yeah. I was swimming in the river for most of the summer where my parents live. And every time I was in the river, and obviously I was swimming rather than in boats, but every time I was just thinking of that rat quote where he says, there is nothing half so worth doing is messing about in boats. And I would think of it messing about in rivers, you know? That, yeah, that suddenly there was a new perspective on this, this river that I was in. And yeah, so that... I think that pretty much covers everything that we wanted to talk about. I mean, not really. We could keep talking about it. But, you know, that I love this story both encapsulates the call to to home, to adventure, and then to God. Uh, And shows you that it can come from a a perspective that isn't so sort of like theologically rigid or... Yeah, and it doesn't even come from a Christian exactly yeah but that the beauty is there when we look for it yeah and that sense of longing is so universal and I think it's it's important to note that when he was writing it Kenneth Graham felt like and we today Phoebe and I just drove past a huge set of suburban houses that were going up and I feel very much like Tolkien where he sees the countryside receding to this ongoing industrialization the march of progress and Kenneth Graham definitely felt that way and you know even in the book Ratty is like oh there's so many visitors now it's so crowded and so the book itself is about capturing I think he said that like oh those rivers may disappear but now I've caught them perfectly in my book so that I'll always have so it's no wonder that it evokes that sense of longing because it was written with that sense of longing so um that it's something that we share with all of humanity so I think that is our first episode back it's wonderful to be back it's definitely getting back into the driver's seat of these things so I better not forget to ask you our usual question Phoebe what are you enjoying at the moment well in very on brand style I was reading Emily of New Moon which is by Ella Montgomery the same author as Anne of Green Gables and I think I'd read the first of the series before but not the full three mm-hmm. so I really enjoyed those yeah. And we watched My Neighbour Totoro last night, which is a Studio Ghibli. So that was definitely high up on my list as well. It's such beautiful music. Yeah, it was lovely. Phoebe has seen it a number of times before, but it was my first introduction to it. So. We have now gone through all the Studio Ghiblis on Netflix and looked at which ones I have to show Rachel. <laughs> I know, I'm really behind. I'll get there eventually, though, Where since we now have lots of time. Uh, the thing that I was enjoying was that, on a, on a similar sort of lockdown note, um, because we're all staying at home and not flying off on, on vacation, there is more of an impetus to try and, and find new locations around near where we live to explore and enjoy. And last week we went to a garden in Wexford, about an hour south of Dublin, called Mount Usher, which was just stunning and luscious, and all of the hydrangeas were out. And it's the type of place that is so beautiful and so carefully constructed as a garden that 
the thing I kept thinking of as we were going around is how I am desperate to see this place in every season. That it's definitely not like a one and done, like, oh, I've seen it now. Like, I want to go back and, and see it in full autumn and see it in even in winter and see it in spring and get all of the different stages of the flowers that are there. Yeah, that was such a wind in the willows garden, actually, because we just finished listening to the audiobook. Yeah. And then it's got this river running right down the middle of it. Yeah. It's idyllic. Oh, so... Hopefully that inspires you to go out and and enjoy nature. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, our usual request, I will be now back. I've taken my holidays. I will be back posting on our Instagram, which is Risking Enchantment Podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Seeking Watson. I'll be more actively engaging on there. And so if you can share it with anyone in your life, we would really appreciate it. We do have some new listeners at the moment. So I'm just thrilled that we seem to be reaching more people and, and that people are enjoying it. So we just want to say a huge thank you to our listeners and it's lovely to be back and I'm looking forward to posting our next couple of episodes. I think we've got some really good ones coming up. And other than that, we'll just say goodbye. Goodbye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.